Yeah, you can you can record bike shed from Amsterdam. That's true. I could just call in. Uh, call in from a canal in a houseboat. Boat shed. <laughs> Boat on the water. Uh, That's not what I meant. Shed on the water is what I meant to say. Boats typically. Go How do you on get your bike into the shed on the water? You get floaties for it. Oh, yeah, I've seen that actually, where you have a boat oh, really? in the water and it's got like big pontoons and then a big, the wheel has little like sections that will catch some water and move it. Seems like a very inefficient way to get around. <laughs> Wait, so some person's at the back of the boat just pedaling their heart out? There, it's just a bike that is floating on the water, basically. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this right. This is weird. Yeah. Oh, they have one over oh, you. It's like skis. You have a giant mm-hmm. floating yep. device on each side. Why? <laughs> just get a jet ski at that point, friends. Don't, don't do that. Don't put a bike on a river. Get a jet oh. ski. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So what's new with you, Steph? So I heard some very exciting news today. What's that? First, we were nominated for the Hacker New Noonies Award for the Best Dev Podcast. And the exciting news today is that we won. We won? Yeah. Holy goodness. Isn't that incredible? It is. Actually, looking, it seems like a lot of a good, like a couple hundred people voted for us. And... I'm incredibly grateful to all of those folks that listen and actually uh, took time out of their day to vote for us in this contest. And frankly, there were some fantastic other podcasts in that list, ones that I listen to and really enjoy. Yes, we were certainly in great company with a lot of the other podcasts that were nominated. It was such an honor to be on that list with them. And thank you to everyone who cast a vote. I, oh man, I'm realizing I haven't prepared like an acceptance speech for this. Maybe I should I should write one down. Will there be a gala where there's the awards are present? Ooh, yeah, let's ask for a gala. I think that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. But again, thank you so much to everyone out there who voted. We thank really you. appreciate it. So that's clearly the, the highlight that's going on in my world. Oh, but there is another exciting bit of news as well where we've upgraded to the new Simplecast version. 2.0. 2.0. It's like Web 2.0, but now. But now. And with that, we now have HTTPS. We do. Does that even matter for a podcast website? You know, my heart says yes, but I can't give you the technical details for an RSS feed, why having that encryption is important. I feel like you know more about this. No is a strong word. I have some baseless opinions, probably. I can throw a few of those around. But um, so historically, we have not had HTTPS on the Bike Shed website. And the reasons for that were due to the nature of custom domains supporting in Simplecast version 1.0. And for a long time, that was an intended feature and finally came with uh, Simplecast version 2.0. So now HTTPS https colon slash slash bikeshed.fm the custom domain with the ssl everything's great and so in terms of like actual security probably doesn't matter the ability for someone to like man in the middle or send other content someone could pretend to be us that's a thing this is a platform where we share information with folks and so we want them to be able to trust that and so i guess that matters some i don't think we're likely to get attacked or anything like that so i don't think that's a realistic case more the thing that matters to me is Everything should be HTTPS. With the addition of Let's Encrypt to the internet landscape, the world of HTTPS and SSL has fundamentally changed. Where this used to be a costly, complicated, annoying thing, now it's essentially free and in most cases it's just automated. Having SSL is free? Yes. So Let's Encrypt is a certificate authority. I'm going to probably talk past my actual knowledge here, but Let's Encrypt is a certificate authority. So Mm. they can issue SSL certificates. 
but they do it for free. So they're a nonprofit that runs on donations from a lot of wonderful organizations. And they run the service for free. And they also have worked a lot around the tooling and the automation. So if you use platforms like Heroku or Netlify, there's a one-click, yes, please add SSL to my site. And there's a, a magical back-and-forth dance where you demonstrate domain authority. And then they're like, cool, you own this. You now get an SSL cert. And it automatically re-ups. I think it's once every 90 days SSL okay. certs from Let's Encrypt, by definition, expire very early to force you to do the automation workflow. But as a result, we live in sort of a different world than it was three years ago where this was costly and, and a whole thing. That rings a bell because I was working on a project. It was when ThoughtBot asked the Boston RB meetup group if we could do a redesign of the website. And when we were updating that website, we also wanted to move it to use HTTPS. But when we were using it with Heroku, with ThoughtBot, we have a, a large enough account in business that using SSL or adding SSL was free. But at that point, it wasn't a free edition. And I'm pretty sure we still proceeded with purchasing that. But you're saying it's free now for everyone? Every platform that I use, it is a fully free option. There was a period where it was like half free and things like that. And there was a transition period where Let's Encrypt existed, but it wasn't integrated into platforms. Mm -hmm. But I think at this point, mostly everything should be HTTPS by virtue of that. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's that's a really awesome service. Yes. Uh, Let's Encrypt is one of those like heroes of the internet situations where they're just, they sort of fundamentally changed the landscape. And so now... It used to be burdensome and costly and all of these other things. And so like, does my, say, open source project, if I'm having a custom web page for that, should that have SSL? I don't know. That's kind of a burden historically now. It's free. It's great. And so in terms of the Bike Shed website, there's a tiny bit of like security and encryption and reasons that I might care about that. But it's more in terms of I believe in this as a truism about mm -hmm. the internet. Everything should be moving to mm -hmm. SSL. So I feel great that now our podcast is also living up to that standard. So thank you, Simplecast. Yeah, I agree. It feels like a, a standard that's worth upholding. So it feels good to now be a part of that, since especially something that we believe in. So to have that as well now. I also love one of the other features that they've added in 2.0 is when you go to the website, you can now play the current episode up top in the banner. I think that's really neat. Yes, there's a bunch of like nice little UI enhancements and things. And I think it was a Rails app before, and I don't know if it's still a Rails app these days, but it's moved into some of the, the whiz-bangy client-side stuff. And so it's got some nice features that fall out of that. But yeah, it's fun times. We won an award. We have a new website. And a new website. So what a time. is happening this week? And also thanks to Tom, because Tom's really the one that did the work in migrating us to 2.0. So thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. So what else is on your mind beyond things meta about this podcast? So I've been thinking a good bit about onboarding and how we welcome new teammates onto our team. It's something that has kind of been on the horizon for me where I've always noticed how different teams handle it, how they address it, uh, the different experiences that I've personally had going on to a new team, some that make me feel just so incredibly welcome and do a great job, and then others where I see areas where I would love for it to be a bit different or improved. So that's been on my mind. In particular, there was a talk that really started getting me thinking about it. It's by Nadia Oduayo. She gave a talk called Code Hospitality at RailsConf a couple years back. I want to say it may have even been 2016. She's been on the Giant Robots podcast, I found out. I haven't listened to it yet, but that's queued up in my list to listen to. 
But her talk on code hospitality wasn't specifically about onboarding, but a lot of the things that she said really resonated with me and would easily cross over into the onboarding space. And the code hospitality, she compares it to the idea of having someone that's visiting your city for the first time. So in her concrete example, she gave where she lives in London, she had a friend coming over to London for the first time and how she went through organizing that. So setting expectations, helping them understand what to bring with them, what they could do in London. Then when they arrived, she would go to the airport and pick them up and then she would tour them around the city. And she made a bunch of examples of how this would also translate into our code base where someone shows up. You don't necessarily want to just set them in front of a computer and then say, okay, here's a readme, here's a code base, go for it. It's nicer if someone goes on that tour with you and gives you some of the context, some of the history of the product decisions, how they've gotten there. There's always trade-offs in application. You may have some tech debt, and that's a great time to highlight how you got there at that point in the product. So yeah, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts in that area, and she does a phenomenal job of giving great examples as to why it matters. How's your onboarding experience been? Do you have a particular onboarding experience that you felt really knocked out of the park? Well, actually, before I dig into that, I just want to go back. I've not seen this talk, but I just love the phrase code hospitality. I think it encapsulates uh, some of the themes and things that I believe in about onboarding and about coming into code bases so well in such a such a short phrase. So I'm excited to listen to the podcast and, and watch the talk as well. But uh, I just love that phrase. But in terms of positive onboarding experiences... I think the main thing that stands out to me is not doing it on your own. Like you said, being handed a computer and pointed at things and said, yep, that should be everything you need, so go for it. I think basically categorically, times where I have paired or been teamed up with someone and they have been there with me, those are the positive experiences. Often we're onboarding into new code bases as consultants and times where we're just pointed at the code base and the documentation, those are less positive. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the things that really stands out about that is the cases where someone is pairing with me, almost without fail, will be looking at the documentation or trying to do something and will hit something that doesn't work. And their response is always, huh, that's surprising. Okay, well, I know we can work around it this way. And I kind of mentally note each time that happens, or I'm like, that on my own would have been like, uh, okay, who do I even talk to? I don't even know the people. I don't know where to look in the code. I don't know anything at this point. But I think that introduction to the code base, getting that first PR up, introductions to the people, the history of the project, I think is an incredibly important one that is often overlooked. I would add to that, like the, I don't know if this is what you mean by that, but the idea of a sales introduction or what does this look like facing out? Not just where do we put our query objects, but what are our users like and what do they care about? Totally. Yes. I don't know exactly, uh, thinking back to the talk, the example she gave, but I would completely agree with that where it's not just a history of the code and how it's gotten to the state where it's at, but it's also who are our users? How are they using this? What pains is it solving for them? So yeah, I, I love that when sales also helps onboard developers to show them what the product means to them and then how they present it to people that are going to purchase the software. One um, specific thing that stands out to me is whenever I have someone new in the office with me, I always bring them to stand up and I stand them to my left so that I can introduce them. And beforehand, I describe to them roughly what stand up structure is like and what what a kind of expected statement is like, yeah, feel free to introduce yourself and say these sort of things, but you don't need to say, you know, all of this or give them some context for that. Because otherwise you're standing in a circle and especially if you end up early on in the circle and two people are like, pass, pass. And then it comes to the new person and they're like, uh, hi, I'm, I don't, I don't know. 
<laughs> and so I try very purposefully to get out in front of that, both with some context and then physically to be a barrier to that situation. I love that. Yeah, those social clues and thoughtfulness is wonderful. Yeah, I, I love that you do that because even though it may only be like a panic of like 10 seconds, that's still panicking for 10 seconds and social awkwardness. Like it's just tough. So yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful idea. So that way you are helping that person understand what's happening so they're never in this awkward moment if they're not sure what to do. Some of the other examples that she gave during the talk, she talked about having your code base always in a state where it's ready for guests in the sense that as you are programming, think about the fact that you're going to have new people joining that code base at some point. So you're programming with them in mind. Granted, we're not always going to keep our house in a perfectly clean state for guests to come and visit us, but there shouldn't also be this period where you suddenly feel like you need to refactor things or clean everything up before someone comes and joins the team. So I thought that was a sort of a nice parallel for thinking about new people coming to the team even while you're coding day to day. One of the other ideas that she presented as well is that onboarding is not orientation. And until now, I had pretty much thought of the two as being synonymous. But I can see the difference if orientation is more you're onboarding with paperwork, any conversations you have with HR, it's more of the how do you get up and running. But the onboarding is so much deeper and can go anywhere from six months to 12 months, in my opinion, of really like becoming a part of that team. And that may be a bit long, but it just depends on you want to continue to make someone feel welcome and understand, well, what are your processes like? And if it's a larger team, it may take that long to actually get to work with all the different individuals on the team. So I really liked that idea that your onboarding is not orientation or your orientation is not your onboarding. She also referenced the idea of teaching someone to fish, where she's talking with a coworker, and the coworker was like, yeah, but what if the person is starving? Like, you can give them a fish or teach them to fish, and it seems kind of rude to give them a pole and tell them to go fish if they're starving. And that's kind of like that first week or two for a new person where you don't want to teach them to fish right away and expect them to be productive on their own. There should still be that period where, as you mentioned earlier, like pairing, where we're still very much involved and helping them get acclimated and pick up their first ticket and walk through that ticket and comment on, okay, so I think we'll touch this area of the product. This is how it works. I'd love to pair with you on this. So yeah, there's lots of lots of good points in the mm. talk. On the pairing and the teaching to fish. With pairing, you can be driving or you can be navigating. And I think, I don't actually have a fully formed idea on this, but I think ideally the first day say there's two days of pairing onboarding. So I'm the person who currently works at the team. We have a new team member joining. The first day of pairing, I'm driving. I'm showing them around, but they've already got so many other new things. They've got like, that's an intense day. So let me show them the way. And then the second day or somewhere along the way, I think it's very important to transition that over. And actually for me as the person from the company, take my hands off the keyboard and be pretty much 100% in navigator mode. And so making sure that they are actually working in the code base. because so I think there's the possibility of you're hearing so many things and you feel like it's sticking, but then the next day, if you were to try and remember like, wait, what? how does that part of the code base work? Wait, how do I actually run the tests? How do I do this thing? And if you haven't done it, if it hasn't gotten into your hands, you may not actually have it at all. So I think that starting with the onboarder driving, so the person who's welcoming to the company, and then transitioning over so that the new person is driving somewhere along that process, both I think are critical. I don't know the exact right ratios or anything like that. 
Yeah, uh, definitely, though. I like the idea of starting off. I do that a lot in pairing interviews as well, where I'll intentionally start out first driving because I want to give them a moment to feel comfortable and let them know and set expectations for what we're working on and start to open files and go through that process to kind of put them at ease. And I also don't believe that we should necessarily like smother someone either that's new to the team. I don't mean to advocate for the idea that if someone's new to the team that they have to pair for their first couple of weeks. There could be a nice balance where you may have a review of the first ticket and pair for the first part of the day, but then also give them some alone time if that's how they're going to digest a lot of the information to have that downtime. But then just if you're sitting next to them, be somewhere close in proximity, or if you're a remote team on Slack, You could let them know if you're putting headphones in and be like, hey, I'm putting headphones in, but I'm totally interruptible. Please feel free to ask me questions so that way they still have whatever space they may need to feel comfortable and to read, but still know that they have you right there next to them if they need to reach out and ask for some help. It's interesting. The headphones thing particularly is like a little microcosm in my mind of the way we tend to interact at ThoughtBot. And I've actually seen there's somewhere on the internet where someone wrote up basically like headphone rules, where if my headphones are off, totally can interrupt me. If I have one headphone on, feel free to interrupt me, but you know, know that I'm working on something. So if you don't have to, maybe send an email or some other async communication. If I have both headphones on, I'm in the zone. I'd rather not be disturbed, which is definitely not how I work. I'm 100% the, I'll put headphones on to sort of get rid of some of the noise of the office, but everyone that I start working with, I say that little spiel pretty early on of, yeah, by, by all means, feel free to you know tap the desk or wave at me or, or whatever. I agree. I'm, I'm in that space as well, where I'll try to actively tell people that they are welcome to interrupt me. I do try with others to use any messaging system that we're using, perhaps if it's Slack. If I don't know their customs yet, I will try hard to reach out to them on Slack first. But then once I've had that opportunity to ask them to be like, is it okay if I interrupt you? Do you prefer that I, I start with Slack? But I feel most people here at ThoughtBot, everyone's pretty great about I can walk up to them and interrupt them without it being seen as a, a rude action. I was thinking about what I said just a minute ago about that six to 12 months onboarding period. And that seems... I'm not sure where I'm getting that number from. Mm, I was wondering where you were getting that number I don't from. know if that's from the talk. I may be totally making it up. But I was thinking about that seems like a long time, but it still seems true. Like, I don't think I felt fully comfortable at ThoughtBot until I was probably a year in. I think there's the concept of the long tail in a lot of things. And I feel like the long tail of onboarding can go to six or 12 months. But ideally, you get to that 80% very quickly. Like, mm. ideally, that first week, you can get to maybe 75 or whatever. You know, numbers are weird, but... But then it's that rest of it. It's meeting all of the different people and understanding the different relationships and dynamics and processes and communications. And you've never seen a prod deploy fail for a couple of months. So you don't know what that's like until Mm -hmm. it happens. Never accidentally deleted the database or, you know, any number of things. Yeah, I guess it's more of that journey of acquiring some of the experiences that are unique to that company. But the first couple of weeks, you're getting up to a high level productivity early on. But that first year is still seeing all the different landscapes of the of mm-hmm. the company and how to how to work with them. I think a way to think about it is like when do you stop saying we when you talk about your previous company? When does we start being the company that you work for now? And I think that's an that, interesting that litmus test. Yeah, I know, right? Say we. <laughs> what does we mean to What's you? <laughs> I guess a different way to frame that is: Do you feel like one of the team fully integrated, or do you still have like, oh, man, I'm still trying to figure things out around here? And how long does that last? Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's an ideal of decreasing that, and more effective onboarding can probably get you there more quickly. 
versus like, if you're just handed a computer and set off to do a thing, then that can lead to like, I don't know, you kind of make up your own company. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, this is what I do. So that's what it is. And you're not necessarily integrating into the larger team and things like that. I have found it usually takes me about six months before my personality starts to come out more. <laughs> mm, you don't go full <laughs> when, step for a while? Yeah, it's when I join a new team. It's it's usually not the full, I, I guess I would call silly stuff for the first couple of months before that starts to come out. So yeah, that's another interesting data point for like when you feel comfortable with your team to truly speak your opinions and, and share your thoughts. There was one other tidbit I read that was about onboarding. You'd referenced earlier when you're researching something, how it's a bit like a design sprint where you go wide and start trying to take all your resources in and, and narrow back in. And during that journey, one of the things that I read talked about how important onboarding is because they said that 60% of employees are more likely to stay with the company for more than three years if they experience great onboarding. We can link to that actual quote in the notes. Granted, it does have to be taken with a bit of caution just because this is coming from a company where they specialize in helping onboarding. <laughs> so there has to be that in there as well. But from the couple of different resources that I saw, it wasn't just one. They yeah. all hovered around that 60 to 70 percent trying to stress how important that onboarding is to not just their immediate productivity, but also the long term as to how long they're going to stay with your company. I think the general adage of first impressions matter. And so your first impression coming into a company, if that's negative or even neutral, it takes so much more positive to offset that because that's your first, your most clear. There's that thing about like you form memories more during periods of novelty. And then the more regular things become, the less you're forming memories. Mm. And so if you have a mediocre onboarding and then everything's fine after that, the thing that you remember is that mediocre onboarding. And that sort of becomes a defining characteristic. And so I can see it leading to attrition and unhappiness and checked outness and all of all sorts of things. And it's one of those like it is costly in various ways to think about, yeah, we're just going to have someone work alongside you for a while. But I think it's one of those investments that is deeply, deeply worth it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's the oddity of you spend a lot of time of your team's investment already, like talking to candidates, interviewing, reading resumes, talking to people on the phone, and then they suddenly show up and then that seems like an awkward time to then suddenly stop that investment. Like if anything, that's the one where you should really like push on the gas pedal and invest even further with them to really welcome them to the team. So that was that's what's on my mind. Every time I think of onboarding now, I think of if someone were visiting my city and they've never been to this city before, how would I show them around? And then how would I help them become comfortable in that city? And it's changed my view of that world a good bit. But yeah, so that's been pretty much what's been on my mind and some of my focus this week. What's going on in Chris' world? I am winding down and wrapping up a bunch of things. I'm going on vacation next week. So I'm in that classic period of, oh, I should really clean this up and hand that off and make sure it's nice and clarifying. And then also I get to go on vacation, which I'm excited about. You amused me earlier when you told me that you need to mow your lawn before you go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like a polite member of society. It's frankly a little overdue right now. And so if I were to leave it for another 10 days, it would be completely unacceptable. Well, and I, I love that because that falls into that mentality where you said where it's like all of a sudden like you're leaving for a week and you think of all the things you need to do. Mm -hmm. And then you get so stressed out right before your vacation and then vacation hits. And yep. it's like you need it even more at that point. Yeah, no, it'll be it's going to be great. I'm very excited about it. I kind of like mowing the lawn, too. So uh, I listen to <laughs> podcasts and Frankly, it's one of the few things that I do at this point that has an obvious physical outcome. So much of what I do is 
poke at a keyboard and change text files, which I love, but there's something very satisfying about having a messy, unkempt lawn, and then I mow it, and then it is nice for one day until it grows back very quickly. Yeah, it's kind of funny as a small side thought <laughs> to all of this, because uh, I've noticed a lot of developers often will have a hobby that produces something more concrete, where the hobby is either uh, baking or brewing beer or working on bikes. Um, woodworking or things woodworking. like that even or knitting yeah. lots of yeah physical handwork type things frankly i need more of that in my life but here we are cool well going on vacation sounds awesome are you gonna delete slack from your phone again like you've done before oh uh, i hadn't thought about it but yes definitely uh, you're my hero for that i think that's awesome <laughs> pretty sure i got that from Derek pryor i got a lot of things from Derek pryor he's, he's my a, hero too yeah if you're out there listening Derek, i hope you are you're our hero <laughs> but switching gears a little bit, I think we have a listener question. That's right. So to kick us off, and thank you again to everyone for sending us listener questions. We love getting these. They bring up some interesting topics that otherwise we may have not encountered. So this week, we have a question from John Riddle, and it's about handling technical debt conversations. John wrote in, in episode 204, you've mentioned a client project where you were folding a bunch of Rails applications into one and then ended up taking way longer than you expected. I'm curious how you being ThoughtBot, handled that from the business side. Was that something you recognized early from the project on, or was it a problem after problem after problem, and suddenly two months became six? I'm curious what those conversations with the client were like. Sure. So I think it's probably useful for me to give a little more context in the actual discussions and the project that we were working on. So the application was a actually a pretty traditional Rails app. It had some sort of a dynamic wizard type experience for designing something and then you know people could get that uh, but otherwise you know user authentication and there's profile management and a bunch of things that are relatively straightforward but unfortunately for i would say purely architectural adventure reasons the app was split into services so at a minimum i remember there was a user service and then there were a handful of other services that i don't necessarily remember the parting lines but one of the interesting things is the team who had done that separation had purposefully made it so that authentication was continuous throughout them. And in fact, the session was stored in memcached. You have a cookie that references your session ID, but the session data actually lives in memcached so that as you move between these different properties, these different websites or the different services in sort of a way, they mm -hmm. all had sort of their own front ends as well. Mm. You as a user would have a continuous experience sort of a red flag number one to me that we are sharing a session across multiple different applications mm -hmm. that starts to hint that maybe they didn't want to be different applications. So to get to some of the specifics of the question, how did we navigate the conversation? And if I'm reading into the question a little bit, it's like, that sounds like a lot of effort that doesn't produce user-facing value. Assuming that is actually the a correct interpretation of the question, I will say that I 100% agree with that at first baseline. We very rarely suggest rewriting in any significant way. Almost always, it's just going to be more effort than it is worth. It's going to slow down basically every aspect of application development. You'll often end up in second system uh, scenario or syndrome. I forget mm. what it's called. But something. What is it? Second system? Yeah. So you're building a second version of the application in the background, and oh. you're waiting for the big day in the future when you're going to switch over. Right. But now, as you want to build any new features, those are all... Well, you're trying to balance, do we wait and only build it in the new version? Yes, that's a tough state to be in. It's a very tough state to be in. And it tends to actually grow because you're chasing a moving target. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of sort of practices and thinking around that. Uh, but overall, this is just a fraught thing to do. And we would generally not recommend it. In this particular case, 
initially when working on the project, we didn't entertain this thought because it's so much outside of the thing that we would recommend. But we kept running into issue after issue, large user-facing bugs that were incredibly difficult to resolve because they were sort of fundamental to the way the application state had been distributed across these services. There was a particular bug that kept cropping up and we just couldn't get rid of it where a user would be doing something, they'd be moving through the like initial onboarding funnel and their session would get dropped halfway through and there would be a failed lookup as they transition across a system service boundary. Memcache wouldn't have it yet because the value hadn't been written, but the second app was trying to read it Mm. and the default behavior was just to sign the user out. And so all of their work that they had done sort of crafting this thing via the the wizard suddenly was dropped. And so that's the sort of user facing like, this is your, your onboarding funnel. Suddenly 50% of people aren't making it through the funnel. Like that's terrible and that's user facing terrible. That's not just I as a developer having trouble making new features. This is users are having a very bad experience. And there were a number of different aspects. Basically everything was a bit more complicated than it needed to be. And fundamentally the decision to break this apart into services really seemed like that was in fashion and in vogue at that time, but did not serve the application in any way. So it was only a number of months into the project that we finally, after every single retro, we were highlighting these are sort of the recurring issues and no one was able to make any real significant progress in the small. We started to add things to the backlog around actually, okay, let's try and wind this one service back in. But even with that, it was a very gradual process. So when I say it took a while, it did take a while, but it wasn't stop all other development and rebuild the system. I think we picked one of the apps and we started to fold some of the services back into it. And I think if ever there is a rewrite type situation, even then we still want to do it that way. We want to keep the existing facade, keep that app that's running, and then slowly extract pieces or move things over to a new system but not do an entire rewrite with a hard cutover at some unknown future date. So that's a bunch of context and thoughts and things, but I'm going to pause there and see what your thoughts on this matter are, Steph. Yeah, I I like your suggestion around avoiding the hard rewrite with a big date of when you're going to do the cutover and folding the services back in. So these were distinct products. You're saying services, but I'm also thinking of like auth as a service, but it sounds like these were actually more product services. They've Um, been separated into applications, but really were tightly coupled with each other, where the user was changing from one product to the other. Sort of, although I don't think the user would have said so. Okay, And that's part of why we had the hesitation was like to a user, they're just using the application. There was basically one application. Uh, There were sort of two sides to it, but even then a user may transition in how they're interacting with the app, such that now using this other facet of it totally makes sense to them. They didn't change, the world didn't change. They just wanna use an additional collection of functionality is how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I specifically remember there being a user service, that was definitely a thing, but every other service really wanted to talk to the user service. Turns out you really care about the users. Mm-hmm. And there was another like data model centric service. So it's like, let's take the God object of the system other than the user and let's pull that out into a service. Uh, I see, yeah. And that was also problematic because every page in the app wants to interact with both Needs the user it. and this yeah. core data model. And yeah. so to focus in on the service oriented architecture part of this, this is the entity service anti-pattern, mm. which I'll link to, I think it's a Martin Fowler blog post that- The entity anti-pattern? The entity service anti-pattern. So pulling one. out service for an entity within the system. So user being one of those entities, you create a service for the user. Mm. You create a service for the 
say it's Airbnb, it's the rental. Uh, actually, I know that Airbnb has a lot of services, <laughs> but um, it's that sort of breaking it apart based on portions of the data model, mm -hmm. as opposed to other like more functional services or things like that. But I think breaking things apart in that way, where you're taking like the user goes over here and the order goes over here and the products go over here, and those are three services, every part of your app is going to need all three of those yeah. to show the page. And so you end up with this very complicated diagram of dependencies. Yeah, that feels like a world where SRP, single responsibility, has gone too far mm. and been applied to services where we are like, well, you have a job, so we're going to separate you over here, even though everyone else also needs to collaborate with you. I'm thinking back to technical debt conversations that I've had, and I think I've been in the world where they've typically been positive because the technical debt, it's... I feel that it's kind of rare that I've been brought on specifically where a team acknowledges like, hey, we have technical debt and we're bringing you on to help us with this. It's typically more we join a team and we start to see that they're having pain and then we can bring that up in discussions to say we're moving a lot more slowly. We keep seeing this reoccurring bug, as you'd mentioned earlier, and then that becomes the driving force. It's not really a conversation of round. We think this code looks messy and we'd like to refactor it to make it better. It's like there's a real product pain behind this and it's important to the business that we address it so i feel like those conversations have always gone well when we have that conversation from their perspective of how they're benefiting from addressing that debt that's in the code base and then there have been one or two clients that i've worked with where they have acknowledged and said we're at a point where we can't continue to iterate on our app it is very difficult for us to move forward and we would love to do a rewrite or some version of that and I've done that once now, and it, it went- You did a full rewrite? Uh, it was a full rewrite, but it was for a specific page of their application. So it was it was one of those times where we extracted it to a front-end client, so we were using React, and we were helping them build a very important part of their application where users would fill out a very complicated form. And they'd gotten to the point where they were having trouble adding features or making changes to it. So then we rewrote that form in React. But it was great in the sense that we didn't do like a feature to feature parity. We went through a design sprint and we discussed the ideas of do we need a form? Is a form a right solution here? Let's talk about the higher goal of what are we trying to achieve? And it turns out a form was the correct solution, but we stepped all the way back to reconsider what we were building. And so I think they came out with not only an application that they can continue to add features features to, but a, a better service to their users. That is critical. Uh, the idea of a feature for feature rewrite is a very dangerous one. A rewrite in general, very dangerous. Feature for feature rewrite, extremely dangerous. Also trying to iterate on your product while you do a full rewrite is also, like I think going back to zero and you're basically building a new product that happened to serve the same customers, very similar to what existed, but I think there's a subtle difference in there. But yeah, so coming back to the base question once more of John is curious what those conversations were like. Uh, and I get that trepidation. I absolutely understand it. And as with almost everything that we do, I think it comes back to conversations and trust and making sure we're keeping the users in mind. Like We can't rewrite in React because that would be fun. Exactly. We can potentially do it if it is helping to serve real end user needs. And sometimes just allowing the developers to move more quickly is a way to help serve end user needs. But we have to make sure that that's principle zero. We're always operating from that. And so in terms of the conversations, I've similarly to you, Steph, had very positive conversations around this. But I think the reason for that is because it's centered around how do we best serve the users? 
not just, I'm so frustrated with this code base. I'm an angry developer. That's not going to work, or at least not in the long term. Yes, I I worry that maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe creating something that's not true in the world, but I worry that some people have been burned by this idea of technical debt where developers will complain about the code and want to change the code, but don't help anyone else understand why it's important to the business or how it's going to benefit the user. Because if you're just doing a pure refactor, there may be no change that the user sees, but perhaps there's another important reason that we need to make that change if it's to then implement a new feature or if it's also going to improve performance. So yeah, I I worry that there may be some people that are hesitant to have these conversations because they feel like it's someone that just wants to go off and have some fun and rewrite some code. And while we're having technical debt conversations, it's truly focused on what's best for their business, what's best for their users, and not so much around like, what do we just think would be fun? Yeah, I think that is a a perfect summary and and wraps everything up nicely. So thank you so much, John Riddle, for sending in the question. And uh, hopefully that shines a little bit of light on what these sort of complicated conversations can look like. A quick note before we sign off today. Back in March, we talked with Devin Zugel, open source product manager at GitHub, about the complexities inherent to open source. This was back before they launched GitHub sponsors, and I would encourage listeners interested in catching up on what they've been working on to check out this week's Giant Robots episode, where she discusses more in depth the funding, communication, and tooling of open source sustainability. We'll provide a link to that episode in the show notes, or you can find it at giantrobots.fm, and it's episode 334. Thanks. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.